Amen. Have a seat. I don't know about you guys, but I've been enjoying this sermon series, King and Kingdom, specifically working through the Sermon on the Mount about like I enjoy having surgery. What do I mean by that? Well, surgery is extremely painful, it is difficult, and yet it saves our lives. The process of of going through surgery is, is not something that we truly enjoy, but the results of that surgery is something that we do celebrate, the success of it. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is literally open heart surgery for those who are listening to it. And it is ultimately, I want you to know this, is saving our lives through the person and work of Jesus. One of the great Christian authors that God has given to us over the years is a man named C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, Screw Tape Letters, some of other writings as well that a lot of people don't know that we should all read. And he was once asked about the Sermon on the Mount. He was trying to explain his feelings about it, and he said this, about the intense truths of the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, Who can like being knocked flat on their face by a sledgehammer? That's what reading the Sermon on the Mount is. If you get to the bare truths, the bare bones of what Jesus is doing, it should literally lay every one of us on the ground before him, just laid out, being felt like we have been hit at our very core, at our very nature by a sledgehammer. Today, we come to five and six ways that Jesus is going to illustrate how the righteousness of the citizens of his kingdom should exceed that of the Pharisees. We learned about that earlier in chapter 5. I would argue that Jesus is going to raise the standard, that he's going to raise the expectations of his citizens to the highest level today. The truth that is going to be shared today is, speaks not only against our natural way of responding, and yet it is not a suggestion It is a command. Brothers and sisters, if this is your first time gathering with us, welcome. But those of you who have been with us, if you have not been hit by these truths, I want you to know there is an evaluation that needs to be taking place in our lives. In verse 38, what does he tell us? You have heard it said that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the pattern that Jesus has been doing over the last several sections, that he kind of shares this truth. You have heard it said, and then he expounds on that truth or or connects that truth to the ultimate truth of what he is trying to say today. In Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. These are the moral laws between God that have also horizontal ramifications. And so, I'm not to covet another man's wife. That is a horizontal perspective, and yet it does have, if I want to be with your wife, very very horizontal uh, ramifications to that. All right. So vertically, it is after God. Horizontally, that does affect our relationships. But in Exodus chapter 21 through Exodus chapter 23, um, we see this transition in the Old Testament from kind of moral laws between God and, and man to 
judicial law. So how do these Ten Commandments then play out in how the judicial system and the civil system work um, in and of themselves? In essence, how does the moral law translate to government? So he establishes the Big Ten, then he spends Exodus 21 through 23 playing out how does this illustrated in government as well. This is key to understanding our text um, and what Jesus is saying and ultimately to the poor interpretation. In Exodus chapter 21 verses 22 through 25 it says this, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out but there is no harm The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. So you get the picture here. It's playing out in civil or judicial system here. There's a pregnant woman. A man punches her, hits her. She gives birth and the baby is okay, he still, because of the law and the judicial system, must pay some sort of fine. But listen to what it says. But if there is harm, so she gives birth and there's something wrong with the baby, then you shall pay a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, husband shall impose on him, and he alone shall pay if it is unclear who is to blame. And it goes on and explains what happens there. Um, Again, we see this later on in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 19. It says, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, shall be done to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21, we see this eye for an eye issue again. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So when we see these ideas, this is taking place within the court of law. They're saying eye for eye, tooth for tooth. These terms in their original context is an established truth and something for the government and the judicial court for them to express and to put on judgments. This was not meant to oppress people. It was meant to protect them. Eye for an eye, we often take that as being the negative, right? You punch me in the eye, I get to punch you in the eye. All right? It may be a positive if you're the one doing the retaliation, but the the idea here was, was not meant to be a negative God established it and implemented it into government law so that it would actually put a boundary on punishment. It's meant not to be taken as extreme, but an act of mercy to limit vengeance and punishment. We often say the punishment should fit the what? The crime. It's called lex talionis, and I did not just put a spell on you from Harry Potter All right, that's Latin. It literally means tat for tat, or the punishment shall fit the crime. Lex talionis is the oldest known law in created history. 
It, it implies that people who are abusing the judicial system process and people who are being punished in severe ways for minor crimes. And so God and government worked together and said the, the, the punishment must fit the crime. In essence, imagine this for a moment. You're, you get pulled over for driving your camel too fast and the Palestinian police pull you over, and instead of writing you a ticket for driving that camel too fast, they kill you. Is there a problem with that? Yes. All right? There's an issue with that. And so this law, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was put into practice to protect the criminal for being overtly punished. By the system. See, it was meant to be very clear. Expectations were known, and it was meant to protect people. Somebody keys your car. Guess what's going to happen to your car? It's going to be keyed. You steal from a person. The court is going to take from you. You burn down somebody's house. The, the court is going to have your house burnt down. You lawfully, unlawfully, excuse me, take someone's life your life is going to be taken. So Jesus is not saying that force is not to be used, but he's saying that it is to be enforced by the law, by the courts, by the judges, by the police. A lot of people have read these quotes from Jesus, and they have become what is known as pacifist. This is not the gospel. This is not the Bible. They've taken it to, far as to mean this that there should be no government, that the problem that is really in the world, and this is coming from people who claim to be Christians, that they have read this passage and they will say things like, ultimately the problem within the world is that we have government, that we have laws, that we have police, that we have wars, and that we have armies. And they would say, taking on the, what I've just read to you, that they are to remove those things, and if we did not have those things, then ultimately heaven would come to earth. It's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not what he is getting at. Why? He tells us here, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek. If anyone sues you, take your tunic. Uh, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go the one mile, then go the second mile, so on and so forth. What Jesus is getting at here is, is that Jesus is not saying that every time evil happens that it should be resisted. Again, we are seeing the difference between what we talked about a few months ago, between righteous anger and human anger. Resist, in the Greek here, means not to set out against. Okay? Not to, to don't start a feud, Jesus is saying, toward your enemies. He's saying don't, don't swell up and plot and plan and systematically prove a way that you are going to come against those who have done evil against you. We go back to the Old Testament. We see this play out in the lives of David and Saul. Saul was a crazy man. He went nuts. David is the, the new king, the God-appointed king. He has right to the throne, and yet what is Saul constantly trying to do to David? To kill him. Saul is relieving himself one day in a cave, because that's where you did your business, 
David goes into the cave and finds Saul with his skirt, his tunic pulled up, and he's squatting, and David sneaks in and can kill Saul. And yet he does not do it. He just cuts a piece of fabric off and says, hey, I, I could have killed you. Doesn't David end up like doing something really bad, I think, and I think killing the man that ends up killing Saul? They were enemies. Saul is trying to kill David, and yet David has no ill will. He is not resisting. He is not trying to feud. He runs from Saul. He flees from Saul. Jesus is not saying that there should never be physical force and that it should never be responded to. People have taken this passage that I've just read to you and have literally stated this, that if you have somebody that breaks into your house and is trying to threaten you, your family, your kids, that you should let them do it. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Okay? Again, we learned the truth a few weeks ago of what there is such a thing as righteous anger. Sometimes force is needed. Jesus is not saying that, that government and discipline should not exist in our society. And yet, throughout the whole council of Scripture, what do we see? We see government discipline. I am thankful for police. I am thankful for government. I am thankful that there is an expectation there. There should be discipline in the home. If you have children, you should discipline them. Maybe part of the problem that we're having in the United States is parents aren't doing that. All right? So there, there is a case in point in the whole council of Scripture of seeing these things. They're given to us for several reasons. God creates these laws. He creates these structures, one, so that we will be thankful, as I just mentioned, that we can be thankful that we have government and police and armies and these sorts of things. The second reason why there's such a thing as eye for eye and tooth for tooth is it should create in citizens, earthly citizens, healthy fear. All right? Healthy Fear. There should be within our society this idea that if I break the law, I am going to be punished. That is a good thing. Now, when a society starts to move away from punishing its criminals, bad things typically happen. Okay? It is supposed to be. This is a gift from God. Both the thankfulness that these things exist, but also that there is a healthy Fear. Now, it is granted, because we live in a broken world and men are sinful, can government get it wrong? Yes. Can the police do bad things? Yes. Is every war just? No. At their rootedness of who they are and why they exist, though, they are a gift from God. It talks about this over and over and over and over and over again within Scripture. So when we see God's wrath being poured out, people like to talk about God's wrath being poured out in the Old Testament and it's not in the New Testament. That's really bad theology. But let's talk specifically about the Old Testament. When we start seeing God being extremely wrathful to the point where he sends armies or by his own hand destroys whole cities and all of their inhabitants, people really wrestle with that, don't they? Man, God is a violent God. I could never 
worship a wrathful God. Brothers and sisters, let's be clear this morning. When we see God doing those things, He is acting in a judicial manner. He is acting in the court of law. They are evil. They have broken His law. No one goes to the judge, except for maybe his mom, of a serial killer, and a judge and a jury has sentenced that man to life imprisonment or death and says that is a violent judge, do they? We support his decision. And yet we will look at God and say, man, he is a violent, wrathful God. No, God is judge. Men are evil. They are criminals. And so when he does this, even to the point where he tells uh, one of the groups, I want to say the Canaanites, I may be, I'm infallible, the scripture's not, I can't remember. But he like tells them, let there be no memory of those people. And if you study that people group, ladies and gentlemen, we should be glad that God did that. Because they were so evil. Things they were doing to kids, sacrificing their children and idols. God acts judicially. He sentences them to death. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Punishment shall fit the crime. God does this. This is one of his attributes. And he has established, though it is sinful, government and officials to do that as well. As we have seen during the time of Jesus, he will again, as you have seen, or as you have heard, as you have heard, as you have heard, as you have heard, the Jews are, are taking these laws and they've removed God's original and purpose for these laws. As Jesus is engaging in ministry, he inaugurates his kingdom and the Jews have taken this law from the judicial courts to personal relationships. So they know this law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That is set up for the court of law, and yet by the time that Jesus comes onto the scene, guess what's happening? They're taking the law into their own hands. They've taken a policy for the courtroom, and they've implemented it into their own lives. So when a crime was committed or an injustice against a person, instead of going to the courts... To have them judge the issue, they took to the law into their own hands. They created justified revenge and retaliation, even though the law prohibited personal revenge. In Leviticus chapter 19, the very first part of that is, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. So what was happening here? They took this law, and if let's say that that, that Christian here punches me. Well, instead of reporting Christian to the law, what do I do? He knocks out my tooth. I attack him. I remove all of his teeth. Don't try me. Okay? You see what's happening here? We, we love this idea. We love this concept. Eye for an eye. You hurt me. I get to hurt you exactly the same way. And yet this is supposed to be taking place in the court. So there is no boundaries anymore. There, there is no court of justice taking place. There, there are no witnesses. If you cause me pain, then I get to give you pain. And what was taking place was people were being punished for even more 
than what they had done. The punishment no longer even fit the crime. Notice Jesus is not saying that the person is not evil against you. Or he does not condone their evil behavior. He, he states that this is an evil in verse 39. Jesus states, though that they are evil, and the act is evil, as citizens of his kingdom living in a world that believes and seeks personal revenge, we are not to retaliate in a personal sense. Jesus then gives in verses 39 through 41 four illustrations of non-retaliation. Thank you, Jesus. This is, it's important to realize this is not an exhaustive list. Just like any time you see a list, typically in the New Testament, um, this is not an exhaustive list. It's going to open up a lot of questions. That's why we have MCs. We're going to talk through some of those questions um, this Wednesday night. But here I would argue that Jesus is illustrating the general principle when he says this. Look at what he says. So if, if somebody slaps you, Turn the other cheek. You've heard it said this. That's for the courts. That's not for you. How should you respond? When someone slaps you, you turn the other cheek. In, in Judaism, the picture here is this. You did bad things with your left hand. Like use the bathroom. Okay, this is pre sharman So you did not eat with the left hand. You did not shake with the left hand. You were even meant to do everything with the right hand because the right hand was considered godly. The left hand was considered not. All right, so the picture is this, is literally a backhanded slap of a person. In Judaism, this was considered to be the, the biggest insult to a person. You were insulting their character. When you slap, I mean, there is still something about when a, when a per man or a woman gets slapped that is even different than them getting punched, isn't it? There's something demeaning, defacing about that, even in our culture, and that's what Jesus is pointing to here. When, when a person insults you, do not repay insult for insult, when I was a kid, it usually took place like this. You're ugly. They would respond, well, you're dumb. And then I would respond, your mom. Right? That's what Jesus is speaking against here. When, when someone talks about your character, you, as a believer, as citizen in God's kingdom, you refuse to retaliate. You refuse to avenge the insult. At the center of refusing is is. is is our ability to not to get back at the person. Now, if it's something really bad, you need to call the police. You need to let them handle their business. But you are not to set out against them in revenge and retaliation. The shirt and the coat, the, the tunic, and the coat. What is that an illustration is? This means that you deserve to be sued. The bad person is the citizen here. You are deserving of this lawsuit. And you, yet you do not have the money, even in Judaism, in historical Judaism, uh, um, this would take place. That like somebody would deserve to be sued. They would not have the money to pay the lawsuit. And so literally, Jews had a coat, like an outer garment, and then they had an under 
garment, all right? Like a long shirt, a dress. Men and women wore them, all right? And, and in Judaism, you could not take a man's coat. Even if you could sue a man for his coat, in 24 hours, even for the poorest of poor to the richest of rich, you had to give them back their coat. Because a man in Judaism was not to ever be without a coat. The desert gets cold, and they thought that that was the most inhumane thing that you could do to a person is take their coat. So Jesus is saying this. If you deserve to be sued, they can, if you do not have the money to pay them, then they, you give them your undergarments. But Jesus says, even though it's not lawful for them to take your coat, what do you offer to them? your coat what's he saying if you owe somebody you go above and beyond what you owe them you always give interest back even if they don't ask for it he goes on um, in roman culture again the jerusalem and those places were overtaken by the roman government and the roman soldiers would often have to pack lots and lots of military items. If you imagine a sword, a helmet, um, a spear, your pack, all of those sorts of things, in this period of time, if a Roman soldier was to walk past Chris here, a Jewish guy, he could look at Chris and he could order him by the law to pack his stuff for one mile. For one mile. It was to carry his load carry his burden he could not ask him to do any more than one mile is it safe to say that the jews and the romans during this time were enemies yes they hated each other and so imagine the feeling as a jewish person when a roman soldier comes by and says hey pack my stuff for a mile imagine the attitude of that jewish person and yet, what does Jesus, how does Jesus say that we should respond? Jesus says to the Jew, to the, to the citizens of his kingdom, to his chosen people, he says to those whom have saved, he's saying to his disciples on that mountainside, he is saying this, if a Roman soldier, if a person asks you to carry their stuff for one mile, you go ahead and tell them, I'm going to pack it another mile for you. Who's in control when you pack it the second mile? You are. See, they no longer have control over you. When you give them what they do not deserve, they no longer have control of you. We also see the person in need. We're going to talk a lot about that next week, so uh, we'll cover that more in detail then. Jesus is calling us to be good stewards of his grace, forgiveness and resources, to be generous even to our enemies. This does not mean that people shouldn't go to jail, but while in jail, our enemies, guess who feeds them? We do. See, there's a difference in, in being in part of the justice system and allowing that to take place, and yet as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to care for those enemies. We are to go the extra mile, that it can be possible that though they are at odds with you, that you should not be in return at odds with them. We're to care for them. Tough. 
If you're a dad in this room and you tell your sons, hey, don't start a fight, but if somebody punches you, lay into them. Not the gospel. Not the gospel. Okay? Now, if they're punching your brother, lay them out. That's the gospel. We all say this, right? You can say what you want to say about me. You can do what you want to do to me. But you mess with my family, I'm going to burn your house down. Did you know that that's more gospel than the first one? See, in the first one, you're all about you and protecting you. In the second one, you have righteous anger for those who are being abused. Do you get the difference? Should we retaliate personally? No, that's what the Jews were doing. As citizens in God's heaven, we have to leave that up to God or hope we have a cousin nearby. <laughs> All right, you going to come protect me? Right? We got to hope that. We got to entrust God's sovereignty and place in family around us, friends around us to come to our rescue, to come to the rescue, even if it's our name, even if it's verbal. It is not our responsibility in the gospel to, to come in a defensive manner and to refute those character insults. It is our responsibility to love those who are insulting us, to be gracious to them, not to think horrific thoughts about them. If you want to see this in practice, I think it's Acts chapter 22. Did you know that Paul insults the high priest? He says it truthfully. He calls them a big whitewashed wall. In essence, he says to them in the literal language, like if you really narrow it down, God damn you. And then they go, hey, hey, Paul, that's, that's the high priest. And Paul goes, oh, whoops. Like, I'm sorry. We see Paul apologize because he insults. I'm so thankful that's in there. We have this idea of putting these people way up on a pedestal, even the guys that are in Scripture. And there was a special anointing on many of them. But they were not without mistake. They were not without folly. They were not without sin. As Jesus keeps going here, in verse 43, he says, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is another partial quote from Leviticus 19.18. I read part of it earlier. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. However, I want you to understand something. Notice by the time of Jesus, what had been taken away from the passage and what had been added, what was removed. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at what he says. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What did they remove? Love your neighbor as yourself. They took that part out. Did you know that the Bible never tells you to love yourself? Because what does the Bible know? You do. That's the problem. Even people who say they don't love themselves, you know what they're ultimately revealing? They love themselves too much that things aren't really going the way that they had hoped and planned. So I don't love myself. 
I'm a terrible person. I'm a failure. All you're redoing is revealing how much you really love yourself. The Jews had removed that truth. They were believing and practicing, imagining for a moment them being justified, them feeling like God is honored when I love my neighbor, but I hate my enemy. And God is up there clapping for you when you do that. That's how true that this is the reality of these Jews and what they believed. See the distortion? Did you know nowhere in Scripture does it say hate your enemy? It's not found anywhere. Why did the Jews add this? It is believed that the Jewish people debated over who their neighbor was. Isn't that what we want to do? And, and, and they had concluded that their neighbors were only Jews. So all Gentiles, all the Gentiles in the world, so it, it, just to clarify this morning, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So think about our world right now. There are Jews, small pocket of people, there are Gentiles. They literally believe that God had given them permission to hate everyone that was not a Jew. Later on, they took it to the extreme that if you were a Jewish tax collector or a Jewish prostitute or a Jewish drunk or something like that, that you were also to be hated. See what they've done? God has said, love your neighbor. Now, who is our neighbor? Does that mean like our friends? Does that mean our families? They begin to use Scripture to justify their hatred. Ladies and gentlemen, they had become a racist. By the time that Jesus is engaging in earthly ministry, the Jews were so deceived that they believed their hatred toward people and other races was honoring God. So we don't like the Hittites, and they believed that God was cool with that. We don't like the Amorites or, or this group of people or, or, or the Romans. We hate those people. And the people that Jesus is talking to, they're sitting there going, man, God is honored when we love Jews, but when we hate those people. When the Jewish sects was called the Essenes, they wrote a group of, of writings called the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. It's a really interesting kind of Jewish cult. And one of their common statements was this, love the brother, hate the outsider. Doesn't that sound ridiculous that these people can justify racism? Does anybody just kind of think that that's like, I mean, to use God as their justification, doesn't that just seem ridiculous to anybody? But should it? See, a lot of people right now are talking about how, well, there was a time we need to get back to it. Let me show you a picture. Is there a problem with this? This was not hundreds of years ago. This is like in the last hundred years. Sitting in church, Jesus saves. We're racist. 
and God is honored by what we're doing. See, sin, Satan, and death has nothing new, ladies and gentlemen. All it does is change the painting. The problems and the issues are the same. Jesus destroys the notion that you and I get to pick who our neighbor is. Not just our friends, not just our family members, but ladies and gentlemen, even people from other countries. Whether they're called a refugee, a foreigner, whether they're an illegal immigrant, all of these sorts of things. I mean, I've got these friends who live in a foreign country, and um, there was an evil dictator, and so in fearing for their lives... They crossed a border to save their child. If you were that parent, would you not cross that border to save your kid? Their names were Mary and Joseph. Their baby was Jesus. We need to be very careful. Extremely careful to justify God and to use him as a justification to be racist and to, to, to war against our enemies. Because God is not cool with that. Jesus' statement of radical love is that we love everyone. Get this straight, ladies and gentlemen. Get this straight, newly engaged people. Love is not an affection. It can have emotions that are secondary, but in and of itself, love is not trust. You can love someone and not trust them. Love, according to DC Talk in the dictionary, is a verb. It's a verb. It's an action. Jesus demands that those who are citizens of the kingdom of God is that they show love to their enemies. It is an action toward them. What we want for them is their very best. How many of us ever check Facebook page of people that we don't like to see what issues are going on in their lives? And when something is bad, you snicker. (laughs) They got theirs. What about when someone gossips to you about one of your enemies and what's going on and some difficulty that's taking place inside their lives and inside the inner corridor of your heart, you rejoice. We dipping all up in that today. How about when you sabotage your terrible boss? How about when you get frustrated because your husband won't take out the trash and so you say to him, or maybe you don't say to him, I wonder how he's going to like it when I don't do his laundry for the next few weeks. Faker. We're going to get into everybody. (laughs) She's a hazel now. You ever do that? Oh, I'll show them. You're going to nag me to death? I'm going to be silent for hours. Give you the silent treatment. What are you trying to do? You're trying to inflict pain for pain. See, it can be very broad, but it can be in very small interactions as well. 
that we are, we are going to avenge our pain. We're going to seek retaliation. You have personally hurt me, and so I'm going to personally hurt you. I'm going to, every country song as of late is about, you've hurt, broke my heart. I'm destroying your pickup truck with a bat. All right? Lemonade, if you're Beyonce, okay? I mean, whatever it is. Like, we're going to hurt people that hurt us. Do you ever celebrate in the pain of others? They got what was coming to them. And it may take years. See, I told you they were a fraud. I told you eventually the truth would come out. I told you there was a liar. And the list goes on and on and on. Brothers and sisters, your character, our character, is not determined on how we love our friends, but in how we love our enemies. Good preaching right here. Your character is not determined, our character is not determined how we love our friends. Our character is in how we love our enemies. Anybody feeling the sledgehammer yet this morning? This sounds like a lot of people in America. Once again, we cannot, we must not, brothers and sisters in Christ, elevate the United States Constitution above the Constitution of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has called his true followers to a higher standard of living. He gives us some illustrations. What does he tell us to do to our enemies? He tells us to love those who persecute you. Wish, pray for their well-being, even. Pray for blessing. Pray that they do not get what they deserve. And, and the heartbeat in that is that, man, it is tough to be ticked at people that you are generally praying for. He goes on, he says what? That, that I cause my son to rise on the just and the unjust. What is he saying? We call that common grace. Right now, there are people that are worshiping foreign gods, and God is raining on their crops. And at the end of that day, what do they do? They go to a statue, they bow down in some direction, and they are worshiping a false god, a no god. And yet we ultimately know that that rain came from glory. His sun shines upon believers in Niger this morning radiating as, as Mark and Parker are preaching and teaching them the gospel. And they thank God for that son. See, Jesus is saying here that he's going to give common grace both to his followers and to those who are not his followers. In one case, the Christian will look at a beautiful landscape and they will worship God. The lost person sees it and just thinks it's beautiful. And yet God shows that to the both of them. God is saying this, don't simply love those whom you know you will get a return. Our love is greater than the world's. We are to love unconditionally because we have been first loved unconditionally. In a, in a society that celebrates retaliation, revenge, and people getting what they deserve. Jesus calls us within our hearts and actions to love not just those who love us, but to love those who hate us. 
Ladies and gentlemen, when, when you hear of terrorists being bombed, do you rejoice in celebration at their death? Or do you thankfully mourn? See, there's a difference. There is a difference. Thankful God that 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 force is no longer here. But Lord Jesus, we mourn. If those people did not know Jesus, they go to hell. We need to stop being a people that wishes that people go to hell. But we are thankful that they can no longer do what they are doing if that is done through the judicial system, the court system. But we also simultaneously need to mourn the loss of those people's lives and where they may be without Jesus. See, what we prefer is to reciprocate love instead of initiate it. We are all waiting for someone to love us, so in return, we can do what? Love them. Isn't that nice? Isn't that easy? Right? Husband, wife, kid does something nice for you. It is easy to reciprocate with love. See, we all learn this about the fifth grade. Let's go back to fifth grade for a minute. We're in gym. Your name's Adam. You're terrible at basketball, but you're trying. You're trying. Y'all playing some hoops, all right? At this time, you probably got on sweatpants, pulled up mid-calf right there, got your Nikes on, some sweatshirt. This is like when I was a kid, 80s. You're shooting hoops. You're, you're not even to the point where you're really thinking about girls. But all of a sudden, Megan's friend, Laura, comes up to Adam. And she says, hey, Adam, let me tell you something. Megan thinks you're cute. She kind of likes you. Adam's like, I didn't know that there was a Megan in my class. He goes, where's Megan? Well, y'all been in the same class since y'all in fourth, I mean, all these years. There's Megan. And all of a sudden, you hear music, bells. All of a sudden, he is enamored with Megan. Why? Because Megan first said, I think you're cute. All of a sudden, he's like, I'm cute. Look at that girl over there. I noticed a girl. I mean, you see butterflies, birds flying. All right? Some Marvin Gaye's playing. You're thinking all of a sudden, look at Megan. I'm in love with Megan. And so the course of some weirdly folded notes and checking the box, yes or no, by the end of the day, Megan and Adam are boyfriend and girlfriend. Is that anybody else's story? We love to reciprocate love. Reciprocate love. We don't like to initiate it. Jesus is calling us as brothers and sisters in Christ that we are to not wait to respond in love, but we are to be proactive in loving, specifically our enemies. Jesus is calling his people to love without limits, without boundaries, without conditions, without receiving love in return. See, if you're waiting to love somebody, someone more because you're finally seeing them love you, you are greatly mistaken on the gospel's call to love. 
His calling as citizens of God's kingdom is revolutionary love that is so countercultural that it should change an entire community. Jesus wants us to love those who are hard to love. Everyone, Christian and non-Christian, can love those who love them. Non-Christians love people. Jesus states in verse 46 that even the tax collectors love people who love them. When we love in such a radical way, we love like God loves. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21, it says, Repay no evil, no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there may be people who do not want to live peaceably with you, but you live peaceably with them. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Anybody got a name on your mind this morning? This is a supernatural love. It's a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Loving like this causes other people to question us, which in turn gives us the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Because this type of love can only happen when the Holy Spirit is present inside of a person. Jesus sets his people so free that they can give up their rights to be right. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we may um, be, or may we be, let that be our prayer this morning, may we be this free, that when you choose to go the extra mile on your own, who is really in charge? A mark of authentic Christianity is that you are willing to give up your rights. Take the loss. In America, we love our rights, don't we? We are all about our rights. We live in an environment of entitlement. We are raising children and young people and college students to have a sense of rights and entitlement. At Secret Church this past Friday night, David Platt said this, In America, we have the right to life, friends, marriage, family, safety, security, healthy, and happiness to eat, drink, watch, Wear, read, study, listen to, and say whatever we want. To organize our schedule, to spend our time, to choose our career, to make our money, to use our money, to take our vacation, and to plan our retirement. To do what we want to do. To go where we want to go. To live how we want to live. Yet, Christ compels us to surrender our rights and to rearrange our lives for the spread of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we cannot cling to the rights of our lives and cling to the cross. You cannot do both. We cannot do both. We cannot have some. But brothers and sisters, that the gospel would say we must count the cost. We cannot. We ultimately will not have it both ways. God will not have it both ways. Either you are for Jesus and he directs all of your life or you are lost and undone without him. We cannot serve two masters. 
We cannot be lukewarm. We cannot be deceived into thinking that we can give the appearance of godliness and yet denies its power. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus has called us to radical abandonment of our natural way of thinking about living, working, neighboring, eating, drinking, talking, and relationship. Notice, who are the people that Jesus is speaking to? The Jewish people. They have missed the point. Who missed what God was trying to do? Those who were supposedly closest to him and his word. We should not freak out when lost people or a lost world responds in a way that it does. Jesus does not begin his ministry by going to the pagan temples, does he? Where does he go? The synagogues. The temples. No, he goes to the Jews. In the book of Acts, when we, the believers were traveling from city to city to witness for the gospel, they first went to these Jewish synagogues. Why? For, because they were claiming to know the very God we are speaking about, and yet they didn't. They were lost. Imagine for a moment that Jesus was addressing the American church today. They had a form of religion but not what God had created. They had created a man-made religion. Jesus not only has to unveil the wretchedness of the human heart, but he also had to unveil the flawed system. Just because a person is sitting in church today does not mean that they have a relationship with Jesus. And just because they can quote Bible verses or they can stand up here and proclaim as I am today does not mean that they know Jesus. Let us not be mistaken, it is often done. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, right, we see this picture, and it's often used in evangelistic tools where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you've grown up in church, you probably know this. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Anybody ever heard that in evangelism? Yeah. Terrible use of that scripture. It is not evangelistic. It is, it is not about evangelism. Jesus is not knocking on your heart this morning. He's knocking on the door of the Laodicean church. They're in there having worship. Cornerstone. Jesus outside. They're in there taking up offerings. Jesus is outside. They're, they're serving in kids' ministry. They're leading us in song. There's somebody in there preaching the gospel, and Jesus is on the outside of the church building, and he's knocking on the door, and he's saying, is anybody going to let me in there? Isn't this about me? See, so many of us inside of the church, my, my concern for us as a congregation, my concern for us as the American church is that in some way that we have created, like the Jews, some sort of religious system and practice, and we understand these, these sayings, we know, we, 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 we say we know these things, and yet we do not live them out practically. We do not have any implications on our lives, and Jesus is standing out of the side of many of our churches, maybe even this one, and if he is, we must go into repentance as he stands out there knocking on those doors saying you are worshiping but you are not worshiping me come back to me and my truths I think that many of us are, are like a girl on my volleyball team sweet little girl never played volleyball before in her life till she got on my team this season and you know in volleyball the ball comes at you you hit the ball 
for the first four or five games, this is what this girl did every time. The ball would be coming straight at her. She would duck. And the ball would hit her in the back. The ball would land like right in front of her, and she would just watch it. And every time, for like four or five games, here's what she would do to me. The ball would be coming over. I'd be like, get it, get it, hit that ball. And she'd go. The ball would hit her in the back, and then she would look at me and goes, I'd be like, you got to hit the ball. And she goes, I know, I know. And then she would look at her parents, and they're like, you know, barking at her, hit the ball. And she's like, I know, I know, I know. Every game, every game. And it's like the whole crowd is going, we know you know. Finally, with this girl, I said, okay, stop telling me you know. Because if you know, you do. Show me. Turned out to be one of our best volleyball players. Because she started doing. I know. A lot of people are sitting in church, and you're hearing this. God says love is enemies. How many of you guys have ever heard that before? I promise you will not go Pentecostal if you raise your hand this morning. All right, no snakes or Kool-Aid's coming out. Everything's all good. Okay? Like, you've heard this, love your enemies. Yeah, I know, but, you know, I'm not going to practice that. I know I'm not supposed to be angry. I know that's what the Bible says. But I'm going to be angry. I'll follow you, God, unless this happens to me, and then that's questionable. I know this is what the Bible says, but I'll show you, God. (laughs) God, have mercy on us. When we live that mentality where we know so much, so much has been afforded to us in American church. And we can know all kinds of things, but we look like foolish like that girl when God launches a softball at us for us to hit. And all we do is, and let us hit it, and then look at everybody. I know. God, have mercy on us. God, help us. Don't tell me. I wonder, and this is, thus saith Eric, I wonder if God is saying, stop telling me what you know and start living out what I've told you to live. I'm not impressed with your ignorance that does not lead to practice or your knowledge that does not lead to practice. In verse 48, he says to be perfect for your fathers and perfect. Now, before we all freak out here, I want you to know this. Jesus demands, God demands perfection. The only way you're going to get there is to be perfect. The word terms here had this, this principle of this is the pursuit. The pursuit of perfection. Jesus is saying, when he says, come follow me, he's saying, you can be like me, you can be like me, you can be like me, you can be like me. And please don't tell me that this is impossible for us to do. Because there is Stephen as an example in the book of Acts. There's later on martyrs. There's a story of this martyr that I heard this week. I love martyr stories. And and he is going to be executed for preaching the gospel. And his executioner, right before he goes to chop off his head, he realizes he's doing wrong. He knows this man. He he knows that he is a a man of integrity. And the story goes that the, the the Christian stands up and kisses his executioner on the cheek. And he goes, let that be a sign of my forgiveness for you. And then gets back down. And the man chops off his head. Don't tell me 
that is not possible because of a man named Martin Luther King Jr. who practiced this. Perfect man? No. Pursuit? Yes. Pursuit? Yes. He's called us to pursue the perfection, to, to be mature is another way to look at that term. To be complete, to be unique, to be merciful, to be holy, to be and pursue perfection. Now when we look at this truth through the lens of the gospel, we must get this this morning. This is a, a radical understanding. As we look at this idea of how we're to view our enemies, this is why we can do this. The gospel. Look through the lens of the gospel at these truths that Jesus is saying. We are the enemies of God. We have belittled that in American church. We feel in some way that because of sin we are victims. No, we have chosen sin. We are the aggressor. We are the enemy of God. We do not like God. We cannot do good outside of or, or within ourselves. We are the enemies of God. Colossians 1.21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Romans 5.10, for if um, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, through the lens of the gospel, you will understand the richness. May we be reminded this morning of the richness of God's love toward his enemies, that we were his enemies. We were pursuing, declaring war. We had the guns in our hands, screaming out to God, declaring war against God. And in the midst of that, he chooses, he elects, he saves, he, he imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus. We are the Adopted enemies of God. This is the truth of the gospel. This is where we must get back to. Ruin. This sense of entitlement that we have is from hell. It's from hell. We, we deserve death. We deserve wrath. Judicially speaking, we deserve death. We deserve wrath, but all we get who are in Jesus. May our affections be turned toward him this morning. What we get is love. Love. If you want to see the Sermon on the Mount illustrated, look to the cross. Jesus is a good leader. He never asks us to do anything that he is unwilling to do himself, and he does it perfectly. In verse 39, Jesus is not to resist the one who is evil. In Acts chapter 8, it tells us that Jesus was led like a sheep to the slaughter. In verse 39, Jesus says, if they slap you, turn the other cheek. And Matthew 26 says they spit on his face and struck him and some slapped him. In verse 40, Jesus says, if man sues you and takes your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In Matthew chapter 27, it says, in mocking him, they stripped him of his robe. In verse 41, he says, if anyone forces you to go a mile, go to and bear their burning. In John chapter 19, it tells us that when he went to the cross, he went out bearing his own cross. In verse 44, Jesus tells us, pray for those who persecute you. And in Luke chapter 23, Jesus is hanging on the cross as he is suffocating, as he is being bled out, as his body dangles like 
hang meat in a butcher shop as he is probably naked in front of his friends and family as they curse him, as they mock him, as Jesus hangs there on the cross. What does the Bible tell us? It says that he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you look at the Greek tense there from what I understand about Greek and what that passage is saying, it literally says that Jesus did not say that, ladies and gentlemen, one time, but that he was constantly saying it. As his enemies were coming after him, he says over and over and over again, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. To his enemies. May we be the kind of church and the kind of people that can look at our enemies. And ladies and gentlemen, confessionally, man, this is so tough for me. we can be like Jesus, where we can love our enemies, where we can be a people that can say, Father, as the insults roll in, as they try to destroy our character, as, as people, even within the church, will take from you as you have given over and over and over and over and over again. They will take advantage of that. They will gossip about you, whether you're the preacher or the person. They will speak against you. May we be a people that can say in our hearts and truly mean it, God, Give them for they know not what they do, and ultimately they're not offending me, that they are ultimately offending you. Jesus looked at his enemies in the face and he says, I love you. And who are our enemies? His enemies? We are. So, what should be the response? We love them, we give them what they do not deserve. And here's what's going to happen. One of two responses is going to happen out of every one of us here this morning. You're going to be, one, passive. You're going to say, I know. That's what it says. And you're going to do nothing about it. Or two, and this is my prayer, is that though imperfect, we should never use imperfection as an excuse to sin. And so what should we do? May this be our pursuit. May it be the desire of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Thank you for the sledgehammer.